The scripture reading today is from the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, verses 27 through 29. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Oh God, the three in one, you draw us into your community of love with people across the ages and around the world. By that same spirit that binds us together, speak to us today so that your message might encourage us and stretch us to trust and follow you. It is through Christ that we pray. Amen. We're continuing our sermon series this week where we take a look at the questions that God asks us through the stories that we read in Scripture. And our Scripture, our question today, comes from Jesus asking the disciples, Who do you say I am? And this scripture today reminded me of one of my professors of New Testament who used to say that the Gospels are all passion stories with different length introductions. Let me repeat that. The Gospels are all passion stories just with different length introductions. His point was that all the Gospels end in the same place with Jesus' death and resurrection. But they emphasize different points at the beginning. They emphasize different stories and different teachings up front. There's this whole area of concentration in New Testament studies. It began sometime in the 18th century, so in the 1700s. And it's called, there are people who study what they call the historical Jesus. And their whole point is to try and find details about the man, Jesus, who taught back in the day of the, of the Bible. And they used what they call critical historical methods to find facts. And they, their whole purpose is to answer that very question, who do you say that I am? Essentially, they want to find evidence of Jesus, the historical person, not Jesus, the Christ, the anointed Son of God, who we're a little more familiar with here in the church. And beyond concluding that there was indeed a man named Jesus who lived in the area of Galilee during the time period in question, that's about all that these scholars who study this can agree on. That's it. So here are some of the answers they give for who this historical Jesus is. When you ask the question, who do you say I am? Scholars have called him an apocalyptic prophet, a charismatic healer, a cynic philosopher, a Jewish messiah, and a prophet of social change. You know, as I see it, each of those answers contains a piece of truth, but none are comprehensive. None have the big picture or the whole picture. 
So scholars, it seems, have also not had much luck in figuring out an answer to this very same question that Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? So it's no wonder if the scholars can't figure it out that we also struggle to come up with an answer at times. As Christian believers and readers, we sometimes lose fact, sight of the fact that the Gospels don't provide really distinct information and clear information. They can be confusion, especially when you compare among them. Because when you want to learn something about someone, one of the first things you do is to seek out their background, where they were born, who were their parents, did they have siblings? Well, when you look at the Gospels, only Matthew and Luke contain the story of Jesus' birth. And even those don't agree. Only Matthew tells the story of uh, the, the wise men coming to visit the baby Jesus and of the flight to Egypt. And only Luke tells the story of the angels telling the shepherds to go find that baby. And then the shepherds do. So who do you say Jesus is when you look at the Gospels that don't necessarily agree? Now we blend those stories together so we have one nice picture of nativity, don't we? We want to have all those different stories as part of ours. They're telling the same story, but the thing is they're emphasizing different points. They're trying to paint a different picture of who Jesus is, of who his identity is. I mean, what if we only had, let's say, the Gospel of Matthew? Who would we say Jesus is if that's all we had, all we knew? Now, Mark's Gospel is the one we read today that doesn't have any nativity story. And we can dig a little deeper and look at this situation in context to see what's going on here when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? Because Jesus had taken the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. That's in the northern part of Israel, near the slopes of Mount Hermon and the source of the Jordan River. You can see how remote it is in this picture. It's not like the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem or even the sleepy town of Capernaum in Galilee. This is somewhere else where Jesus has taken the disciples to get them away from the crowds, to allow them to think for themselves, because he wanted to ask them two very deep questions. The first, who do people say I am? And the second was, who do you say I am? And once again, I want to remind you, we've talked about this in the past few weeks, that Jesus isn't asking this question because he doesn't know who he is. Pretty sure he's pretty solid on that. Jesus is asking them because he wants them to think about their answer. He wants us to think about our answer. He says, you who have witnessed all the miracles I've done, you who have listened to all my teaching, you who have slept and eaten at my side, what do you believe? Who do you say I am? And how does your answer differ from from the answer of other people when they say who I am? According to Mark, Peter answered Jesus' question quickly by saying, you are Christos. In Greek, Christos, the problem with that word is that it has a lot of meanings. It can mean Messiah. It can mean anointed one. It can even be a proper noun, a name. So here you have this potential answer of a disciple in one word, you are Christos. But you've got to remember, we don't exactly know how to translate that and what Peter meant 
when he said that. And not only that, Mark is telling this story, so it's coming through Mark as well. And in Mark's gospel, Mark cuts Peter off quickly because Jesus says to him, don't tell anyone. So what does that mean? I want more. What does Christos mean to you, Peter? If I had Peter in front of me, I would have so many questions for him. But unfortunately, Jesus cuts him off, and we don't know what he meant. We can translate that word, but what did he mean by it? Who do you say I am? Now remember, as Methodists, we hold that Scripture is the inspired Word of God. We acknowledge that the Bible was written by lots of hands over a huge span of time. We acknowledge that each author did their best to connect with God and to write faithfully what they were supposed to. But we also acknowledge that these writers were all humans, fallible, lovable humans who did their best. So that means each gospel writer carried a little bit of his own story into the story he wrote down. Remember what we said above, why did Matthew include the wise man? men, but leave out the shepherds? And why did Luke include the shepherds, but leave out the wise men? This all has to do with who they were as authors and who they were writing to. So each gospel writer would answer that question of Jesus differently. Who do you say I am? They'd all have a different answer. And I have a feeling that if I went around to each one of you in this room and asked you the same question, I bet you'd have a different answer. We wouldn't all come up with the same answer, would we? Now, skeptics, those are people who don't believe in God or don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Skeptics point to that confusion as evidence that Jesus was just an ordinary human being. None of you can answer who he is, they say. But for those of us who believe, we think of that just the opposite way. The idea that Jesus can be so many different qualities and characteristics whether, depending on what we need him to be, whether we're the Samaritan woman at the well or a lost sheep or a blind beggar, Jesus can morph to be exactly who we need him to be. And that's evidence to us of his divinity, not his humanity. So that leads us to the difficult part of our question today. Who do you say that I am? Because who do you say that I am is asking at the very same time, who do you say that you are? That's the difficulty of this question. Because if you're going to provide an answer to that, to who Jesus is, it means you also have to look inside at yourself and say, who am I? And what do I need Jesus to be right now? But not only are we looking at our own identity, we're often looking at our own weaknesses to figure that out. And I'm pretty sure that most of us can look back over our lives and think about times where we've had to call upon Jesus to be different people, to be a teacher or a healer, a good shepherd, a prayer. We want and need Jesus to play different roles depending on where we are at the moment. So we get that answering this question is maybe a little more complex than it seems on the surface. How do we figure it out? Study is one answer. Since I was sometimes in my 20s, I began studying scripture and the Bible and doing Bible studies and going to church 
and then going to seminary and then working towards a PhD in New Testament. And most of that time, my quest was to answer this question. Who do you say I am? And this is what I've learned and what I can tell you for sure. Jesus is the most alive, compassionate, aware, and responsive human being who ever has lived. I think his death is love's response to evil. I believe that something, something absolutely extraordinary that defies description must have happened after Jesus' crucifixion. It's what we call the resurrection. And whatever that was, it was so unbelievable that it took this band of terrified, frightened, confused disciples and it transformed them into bold witnesses who were willing to die for their beliefs. I find that the Bible contains the best possible explanation for this transformation, that this man, Jesus, is both human, one of us, and at the same time is God, who comes to us in the flesh. I've come to believe this. I've had people along my journey question that belief. Often they'll, they'll ask me something like, what about all those other religions? Are they all wrong? All those other spiritual teachers? Surely some of them are equally worth following to Jesus. Equally good people. And I want to preface this by saying that I have the utmost respect for people who follow all sorts of faiths. At the same time, I know what I believe. I know myself. And I know what I believe when I say these things. And this is what makes the most sense to me. There's an American philosopher by the name of Dallas Willard. He spent most of his time and his career at uh, University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And really smart man, attended Baylor, so we can applaud him for that. He spent some time in Texas. Um, and he carried the distinction of being both a modern philosopher and a Christian. And those two identities do not necessarily go together. Philosophers and Christians, we used to see a lot of them. You can count people like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien in those categories. But today, you don't get philosophers who are also often Christian. And Willard told stories about his students who would question his faith and his Christianity. They would ask something like I heard, why do you, an intelligent, thoughtful, well-educated man, why do you follow Jesus? And Willard had a simple answer to this question. He would say, well, tell me who else you have in mind that I should follow. And he was not trying to be flippant or anything like that. He really wanted to engage these students. He wanted to know what their answer was. And then once the student would make an answer, he would sit down and engage that student and draw up a comparison. Willard claimed that if anyone had ever come up with a better suggestion than what he followed, he would change his faith. Willard died a Christian at, in 2013 after a long career in academia, never having found anyone better to follow than Jesus. And I think Willard's point and my point is that when we come to know Jesus deeply, whether it's through scholarship or other means, when we experience that transformation like the disciples 
felt, when we come to know Jesus that deeply, we'll find that he's the best choice when compared to anyone else. And even though other spiritual teachers may have lots to offer, they fall short of what we've found in Jesus. For me personally, I know that's true. I'm very clear in my experience of who Jesus is for me. So how did I come there? It wasn't just through books and study. It's, there's an, another essential missing piece here. Sinking into scripture is important, but it's also important to spend time getting to know Jesus personally, traveling to quiet places, and just experiencing what that was like. I want to offer an example. I've been married to my husband Jim for 31 years, and we've known each other seven years before we got married. And all of you, if I asked you to to describe him, if you've met him, you could probably say some nice things about him. You could tell me he has brown hair with just a smidge of gray coming in, brown eyes. You probably know that he's a software engineer and that he works up in the AV loft on most mornings. You know some things about him, but you don't know all there is to know. You don't know him on the same intimate level that I have because I've spent 39 years with him, getting to know him. You don't know how kind he is, how he has a tender heart and will cry at movies. You don't know how picky he can be about the right way to load the dishwasher. (laughs) You don't know how he is very particular about which carpet is the best carpet. These are things that I've learned about him over time. It took me time to get to know these things. And they make up personal knowledge that I have of him because of the amount of time we've just spent together. It's not historical knowledge. It's not factual knowledge. It's intimate knowledge. And it takes work to cultivate a relationship like that. And it takes work to cultivate an intimate relationship with Jesus. So yes, knowing the historical Jesus is really important. But if you want to experience that transformation like the disciples experienced at the resurrection, you have to cultivate that personal relationship too. And it's not a process. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It requires consistent attention, much like any other relationship you might have. It's going to take a lifetime to grow it to its fullest extent. So I ask you, are you willing to do that work? Are you willing to do the work to discover your answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Amen. As the ushers come forward this morning to receive the the offering, I want to remind you that we have electronic giving cards in the back of the chairs if you choose to give to the church electronically. And also here at this church, we like to make sure that every hand touches these baskets because every hand is offering up a gift this morning, whether it's something you put in the basket physically or whether it's your presence here with us this morning. So please make sure the basket travels out throughout the the room. With that, let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this day. And we give you thanks for your presence and your longing to draw us more intimately into a relationship with you. 
We offer up these gifts this morning, praying that you will guide us in their use so that we can help others come to know you as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.